that. Many skeptics even say that I want proof for the existence of God. If God would just show me right now, show up and do something big, seeing is believing. If God would do something, then I would believe. And many Christians even believe if if God would just do more signs and wonders, there would be more believers. But here's the deal. The raising of Lazarus was a visible manifestation of the power of Jesus. It was a sign. It was a wonder. And still yet you had people who wanted to kill him for it. They didn't believe in him. With all the information right in front of them, this visible demonstration, they still rejected Jesus. Because the problem isn't first and foremost information. Kale knows this. Nick knows this. Many of you who deal with working with people who do not believe realize this, that it's not simply about information. The problem with humanity is that humanity has a sinful heart that is bent in on itself and it is out for itself seeking glory and honor apart from God. Seeking validation and praise apart from God. It seeks the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. The problem is not information. The problem is the human heart, the human condition. And we're going to see that clearly here today. We're going to start by looking at the Pharisees. And we're going to see a bad response to the signs of Jesus. And as we go through this gospel, and as this book is intended to be evangelistic, and as if, if we ask anybody to read this book that we're talking to who doesn't know Jesus, this is a possible response. It's the wrong response, but it is a possible response. There are people who read the gospel of John, and they look to Jesus, and they reject him still. It's possible. But what I'm going to plead with this morning is that if you're here and you don't know Jesus, or if you know people who don't know Jesus, the appeal is going to be, please, by the grace of God, look to Mary and respond like Mary. Look to her and respond like her. But first, let's look at the Pharisees. Look at verses 45 through 48 in John chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our our place and our nation. Now it's interesting, because in verse 45 we find that there are some people who are standing around the tomb, and upon hearing Jesus say, Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And they saw him come out, a dead man now alive. There are some people who believed. And this is appropriate. Now we do not know if this is true belief, saving belief, because we see in the Gospel of John over and over again the contrast of true belief and false belief. Even though it says many people believed, for instance in John chapter 8, Jesus turns to them, to the very people who say they believed and called them children of the devil. And so... We don't know if it's true saving faith, but we do know that it's called belief, that many believed in him. Nonetheless, the sign is compelling to them, and they were there believing. But then there are others who see right in front of them a miracle, unquestionable miracle. This isn't something like somebody's back pain that goes away. That is a miracle, but that is, you can reason that away. This is a dead man coming to life. This isn't knee pain simply disappearing. This is Lazarus walking out of the grave. 
And there are these Jews, amongst the Jews, who get nervous about this and immediately begin to be afraid and they go and tell the Pharisees what's going on. And the Pharisees begin to, the Pharisees begin to be afraid and afraid for two primary reasons. They're scared of the Romans, that the Romans, upon hearing this Jesus, if people follow Jesus, the Romans are going to come and hear that the allegiance of the Jews is moving from being aligned or respectful to the Roman rule, and now our allegiance, instead of going to Caesar, it's going to go to Jesus, their king, and we got to do something about this before all craziness breaks forth. But in verse 48, we see this. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This is the fear of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are afraid that because of Jesus, even though this sign, even though the power of Christ is before them, he has power over death, they're afraid and they don't like Jesus because they're scared that they're going to lose their place and their nation. Consumed with position and power. Position and power. This is the Pharisees. Clearly, they do not value Jesus in front of them. What they value is position and power. This is the operating system of the Pharisees. What they want, what they love, is position and power, and they're willing to sacrifice Jesus for it. For them, killing Jesus is the way to secure something for themselves. They don't care whether or not Jesus really is who he says he is. Because in their hearts, they want something. And this is the problem with the human heart. Religious leaders, they were consumed. They loved their position of authority and they loved their nation. They wanted these two things to stay intact by enemy, any means necessary. It was their ultimate identity and their mind and in their heart for them to lose position and lose power was for them to lose everything. That's what they wanted. That was the good news of their existence. If I can have esteem, if I can have position, if I can have the eyes of people revere me, then I'm happy. That's what I want. And I, by any means necessary, even sacrificing the man who just called the dead man out of the tomb, if I sacrifice him and get to keep position and power, I'm happy. It's not just about evidence. You see it clearly. The evidence is in front of them. Their hearts wanted something other than submitting to Jesus. They didn't want to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. They didn't want that. They wanted position and power. The human heart, this is not just the Pharisees. This is all of you and me pre-Christ. These are still battles that rage on in our heart. This is the world. This is the problem in the world. We've talked about this regularly, repeatedly in the Gospel of John. It's spiritual deadness. And the human heart longs for a glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. It is bent, the heart, on self-interests. It does not naturally deny itself. And so if we think back to the Garden of Eden, the enemy tempted 
Eve with power to be like God. You can be like God. And tempted Eve to believe that God is holding back on you. Okay, Eve, you can do better for yourself. You and Adam can do better for yourself than God will do for you. And in the human heart from that day forward is this fundamental distrust in the God of the universe. In the human heart, the belief is, I know what's best for me. I can make myself happy. I can get for myself what I want, and I don't need God for any of that. And if position and power makes me happy, I'm going to make the goal of my life position and power. I'm going to get it because I believe that's what will make me happy. And that's what the Pharisees wanted. The fundamental distrust of God and trust in themselves that I can do better for myself than God can. I trust myself for what I need more than I trust God for what I need. Truth was in front of these Pharisees and they didn't care. It would require them to actually believe that there's something better for them than position and power and they just couldn't get beyond that. What could be better than position and power? If anyone is to get in the way of a person like the Pharisee, maybe a person like you were before you became a Christian, if your desire is position and power, and if anyone gets in the way of what I want, then that person has to go. And that's the case with the Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus is getting in the way of what they want. He has an authority that they don't have, and they hate him for it. Jesus stepped on their toes, and so they wanted to crush him. Jesus, in their mind, can be sacrificed because they wanted reverence from people. Okay, the, a human heart. And so they make a decision. They make a decision. What are we going to do? In verse 49, we get the answer to that decision. But one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole world should perish, or the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the, not only for the nation only but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. So here's the deal. They're scared. Position and power, it's going away. Caiaphas steps up and he addresses this council. He begins to speak. And he begins to speak of things he does not understand. He speaks a true prophecy, something that is real and right, but they misinterpret the meaning of it. They misinterpret the prophecy. And instead of understanding that Jesus, in fact, did come to die for the nation, and not just for the nation, but the nations of the world to gather from abroad, they thought that Jesus, if they sacrificed Jesus, it would appease Rome, and Rome would not come and overthrow them. They misunderstood. They thought it meant that they needed to kill Jesus to stop the revolt of Rome. If thousands turned to Jesus and pledged allegiance, in other words, to Jesus, 
then Rome would come and they would clean house, crush Israel. And so they thought the prophecy meant kill Jesus and we can keep power. Kill Jesus, we can keep our place. Kill Jesus and we can keep our nation. Are you following the logic here? And we know that they understood this because as the high priest spoke in verse 53... They say, so, or in other words, therefore, from that day, they made plans to put him to death. They didn't understand the prophecy. They understood it and interpreted it in the wrong way. And false gospels, for them, the good news of the gospel here, this false gospel, they thought the gospel was Jesus will die for position and power. And in their mind, that was good news. It was a false gospel. False gospels have been around a long time. Jesus dies, we get power and authority and position now. Our nation is physically saved now. We don't have to surrender anything. We don't have to submit to this Jesus. We can get the things that we want if we will just sacrifice Jesus. And so Jesus, they seek to seek Jesus on the altar of their false good news, which is their power, their way, their nation. False gospels abound. Falsely believing that the gospel of Jesus is about getting what we want instead of surrendering all to him. And so the hunt for Jesus is on. The Pharisees turn their attention to getting Jesus arrested and putting him to death. Look at verse 54. Jesus therefore no longer walked open among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed, in, stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given order that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So after the decision in verse 50. Three, putting him to death, Jesus withdraws, and then all of a sudden the Passover's at hand, and there was buzz in the city. Is he going to come, or is he not going to come? Is Jesus coming to this Passover? The people were seeking him, wanting to know from him if he was going to be there, if he wasn't going to be there. There was a buzz in the city. Now, if you remember years ago when SIU had a really good basketball team, remember that? Okay, 2008. We went to the Sweet 16, and there was like 80-something games, I, I think it was, where home games that SIU won. We had this nickname, Floorboard, Floorboard U. I mean, the Salukis, you didn't want to come to Carbondale and play the Salukis. We were winning game after game. And when there was a home game, there was a buzz in the city. I mean, there was an excitement. Even if you're not a sports fan, you kind of knew what was going on at SIU. SIU's good, right, this year? And even if you didn't know sports at all, you just knew in this area, hey, SIU's good this year. And there would be a home game, and there would be a big team like Creighton that would come in, and there would just be a buzz in the city. We are in a smaller community, in a smaller region. Think about Jerusalem, the, 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 the religious atmosphere, everything that had been going on in that city, the back and forth that had been going on between Jesus and the Pharisees, and now Passover's at hand, and people had been coming in droves by the thousands into the city. And they're all wondering, is Jesus going to be here, or is he not going to be here? 
I mean, you can kind of cut the tension with a knife. You can almost see it. The religious leaders kind of stomping around, frustrated. And then kind of the common folk wondering, what's going to happen? Is he going to come? Is he going to be here? Is he the one? And so the atmosphere is intense, to say the least. And Jesus, in fact, would come. But before coming to Jerusalem, he's going to make a stop, a pit stop, at his friend's house. He's going to stop in Bethany. And he's going to stop at Mary and Martha in Lazarus' place, where Lazarus is staying, this Lazarus who was just healed. Now, it's interesting, in the account of Lazarus being healed, we hear nothing of the response of Mary, Martha, or Lazarus. We don't hear anything in that story yet. Like, what happened that day? You would think that they, you know, and they jumped up and down and screamed and ran around and praised the Lord and gave hugs to Jesus and cared... But we do hear in this account what Mary's response to Jesus was. So he's going to walk into Jerusalem, two miles out of Jerusalem. He is going to go. And we see clearly that the Pharisees has, have responded to Jesus badly. And now Jesus' friend Mary is going to show us another way. She's going to show us another way. What is the right way to respond to this Jesus who has power over death? This is an evangelistic book, an evangelistic appeal. How should we respond to the Gospel of John, to this Jesus who is in front of us? And Mary is going to show us, oh, a sweet and wonderful way. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Martha, Martha, still serving. Lazarus was one, one of those reclining with him at the table. So they're back to Bethany. The scene includes Jesus, disciples, Martha, Mary, Lazarus. Lazarus, still alive, still there. Not taking himself too seriously. He's reclining with Jesus. I love that. Reclining, spending time together, hanging out. Reclining has with it this um, connotation of uh, lax, relaxed. Jesus knew how to do this with his disciples. He knew, as, uh, as Richard said earlier, he knew how to hang out on the beach with the fellas. He knew how to make fish and have breakfast with the disciples around a fire. And the scene is here. Lazarus is alive eating. He really is alive. He's doing well. And they're hanging out. They're spending time together. Martha is doing her work. But something is welling up inside of Mary. Mary is in this scene, sees it, and something inside of her is just stirring. And I don't know if you've been there before where you just have been overwhelmed with joy or overwhelmed with just thankfulness to Jesus, where inside you just feel like you're going to burst or you're going to explode. Maybe for you that happens when you're looking at your children, but it's just a moment where you're just so unbelievably thankful. Something is welling up inside of Mary. As Martha is busy doing her work, she's ever so faithful and diligent to work. Martha's still doing this. Lazarus and the, the boys are just reclining with Jesus and Mary, I almost imagine her just kind of sitting there in the corner or sitting down with the guys reclining. And, and she's seeing something else that's going on. She's feeling something different than anybody else is feeling. And it's just welling up inside of her. The emotions are beginning to flow. 
And we see this clearly. She's looking at this scene and something is happening inside of her because in verse 3 it says, Mary, therefore, Mary, therefore, and as every pastor has said before, every pastor has said before, if you see a therefore, you've got to find out what it's, what it's there for. Mary, therefore, she's responding to something that's happening in verses 1 through 3. She's re- re- responding to this reclining, to this party, this time with this Lazarus being now alive. It seems to be connected to Lazarus reclining. Look at verse 2. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, why is it there? It seems like, based on the structure of the sentence, that Mary's actions in verse 3 and 4 are a result of her watching Lazarus be here, the man, her brother, who was dead and now alive, and she's seeing the scene, and Lazarus is here laughing with these guys, reclining with Jesus. And so she responds to this miracle of Jesus in a right and appropriate way. The Pharisees, wrong way. Mary, right way. How does she respond? And I want to lean in together. I want the scriptures to regularly pull us from the back of the pew. And if it doesn't physically do this, the scriptures, I want them to pull us in spiritually to where we're leaning in and we're kind of like, yeah, what happens? The word of God is so compelling and it's so rich and it's for us. And let us not be bored with it. The setup is beautiful. Lazarus is alive, and Mary is moved. And brothers, sisters, kids, you've been moved before. And here is Mary. What's going to happen? Friends, the road less traveled is the better way. Robert Frost was on to something. There's a lot of common grace in that poem. And that has made all the difference. Mary responds, look at verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. In light of Lazarus being there, reclining, welling up inside of her, she walks over and most likely the most expensive thing in her home Very expensive. How expensive? Well, based on Judas' words here in a second, we find out that it's around 300 days wages value. So you want to calculate that? Think about 300 days of work. Very valuable bottle of perfume. This isn't the Brut. Andy and I like Brut. So we like acting like we're old men. Brut. This isn't Brut. I mean, this is the good stuff. Stuff that you can't buy. This is stuff that, like, Kardashians buy. Somehow she has this very, very valuable, rare bottle of expensive perfume. She opens it, thousands and thousands of dollars, and she walks over. Everybody's reclining. And here's Mary. She goes to Jesus' feet. She takes the lid off, whatever, and begins to pour this out. Not water. Not out of the bar that, not out of the bowl that typically would have been used to clean the feet of people who had walked through a door. She begins to pour this ointment, this perfume, out on his feet. She takes her hair out, pulls a first-century ponytail out, and she begins just washing feet. 
Now, you've heard this before, too, you know, walking in sandals, and they didn't have infrastructure like we have. They didn't have clean streets and city street sweepers walking up and down the road. So grime, you know, regularly, and I've said this before, too, people are like, feet are full of animal feces and stuff like that. Um, but most likely, they were, even in that day, not looking for animal feces to step in. So they probably did step around it. But nonetheless, Jesus' feet were not clean. Okay? And here she is, washing, not with an extra garment that she had in the corner in the cupboard, not with what she had under her bed that she could use and throw, throw away. She begins to wipe with her hair. Expensive ointment. You know, the people in the room is catching her attention. And she just, she wants to wash the feet of Jesus. She's learned from him. She loves him. She healed, he healed her, bro- her brother. And for her, her value was Jesus. This thing of great value was nothing compared to the value of Jesus. Her treasure was not the perfume that was worth so much. That valuable piece that was in her home was nothing compared to her Lord. And so what is it to use this thing of value when you're so much valuable? Jesus, you're the one who have done this for my brother. What is it to just lavish my love and use the most, the most precious thing that I have in this home? I would gladly pour it out over your feet and gladly wash your feet with my hair. You're my Lord. It's clear what Jesus, what Mary values. Jesus, something that's 300 days wages is nothing to give up. Nothing to give up. It wasn't a question in her mind. It's just, this is for the feet of my Jesus. Contrast that even with us today, spirit-filled believers. Mary was not spirit-filled. She did not have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in her yet. And how quickly our heart clings to things of monetary value. Do you have anything in your home worth 300 days wages? Do you see that possession as yours? Mary knows better. The ointment is best used to clean Jesus' feet. It's for him. Now, Judas says something alarming because it sounds so right. Judas says, to be quite frank, Judas says what I think Jesus should say. Shows how wrong I am. Judas says what I think Jesus should say. Just shows how wrong and twisted just the way of the world is. Judas pipes up. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he himself was a thief. 
having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put in it. Now, not verse 6, but verse 5. It feels like Jesus should be the one saying this. Martha, Martha, don't, don't lavish that on me. Don't use that for me. There are better things, Mary, excuse me. There are better things, Mary, that we can use this for. I can wash my own feet. I'll wash your feet. Don't break that and use that on me, or don't pour that out on me. Don't waste it. This should be given to the poor, Judas says. And like most people who claim to really care about the poor, they have ulterior motives. I'll say that again. Like most people, altruism that's bragged about is not altruism. There's ulterior motives. What's in it for me, for Judas? And humanity is always trying to reason away sin and to make ourselves look good, jockeying for position or making ourselves look good when inside we're thinking the exact opposite thing. Don't we think it's a better idea to just give this to the poor? What a waste. Thousands of dollars on the feet of Jesus. Are you kidding me? Well, Jesus speaks in verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave her alone, Judas. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me with you. You do not always have me. Jesus says, leave her alone. Let her not only pour it on my feet, but then use the rest of it for my burial. Don't stand in the way of her responding to me in this way. Jesus lets Mary worship him at, ex at her expense, at her cost. He doesn't correct her. He commends her. It's good for Mary to be gripped by Christ and not by this valuable possession. You might think Jesus would counsel her. Don't use that on me when you're going to come into a pinch here in a little bit. And you'll need to sell that for yourself. You'll need to sell that for Martha and for Lazarus. Use this valuable thing for yourself. Keep it. Lock it in the cupboard. Put it under the bed. Bury it. But Jesus says, no, let her use it, not just now, but use it in my burial. Let her use it all on me. Do you realize how much that cost, Mary? What is 300 days wages for you? For her to do this, Jesus is saying, I'm willing you to give me almost a year wages to worship me. Yes. Leave her alone. Don't tell her something else to do with it. Let her, out of the overflow of her heart, sacrifice this to love me. It's amazing. In fact, C.S. Lewis' argument, liar, lunatic, Lord, works perfectly here as well. Because Jesus isn't a great teacher here if he's not God. Jesus isn't frugal here if he's not God. He's very self-centered here unless he's God. But he is who he says he is. Let her use it all on me. Here's the truth. Jesus asks everything of us. Everything. 
Everything we have is a gift. What do you have that you did not receive? The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Everything you own, everything you have, is for God and His purposes. The greatest thing that Jesus could do for Mary here is not to let her hold on to this and, and keep an idol in her heart, this possession. Jesus is freeing her from a life of trusting in possessions. Do you realize how fast possessions can come and go? How fast wealth can come and go? How fast something as valuable as $300 or 300 days wages can be gone in an instant? Ask those who had so much money in the stock market in 2008 how quick their money can go. See, the life of the Christian is one of surrender. It's not one of gather and hoard power like the Pharisees. Jesus, to come face to face with Jesus, the Pharisees want to kill him because they won't get, he won't give them what they want. Mary comes to Jesus, and it's like symbolically she's saying, all I have, all I am, it's yours. How can I not love you? Let me wipe, my feet, wipe your feet with my hair. And here's the point, beloved. Brother, sister in Christ, you belong to the Lord. And everything in your life, when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, he doesn't say, deny some of yourself, hoard this, Jockey for position and power? When Jesus calls it to himself, it's a lifetime, a lifetime of surrender. Jesus, I trust you. I'm surrendering to you. Your ways are better than my ways. Your thoughts are better than my thoughts. The Pharisees thought, you know what would be really great and what's going to make me happy? Position and power. The Christian says, you know what, I would love position and power, but if I never get it, I trust Jesus has something better for me. And if it means submitting to somebody my entire life and never having position and power, I'll be happier for it. You know what Jesus has for me? He may not give me an oint, a bottle of ointment for 300 and something worth 300 and something days. He might not give it to me. He'll demand it for, from me. I'll give it to him and I'll be happier than if I had the possession. It's like our hands that so pry on what we want and what we think will make us happy. Jesus is like, will you open them and trust me? Because what I have for you is better. What I, have, what I have for you, if you'll surrender what you want, if you'll surrender your dreams and your plans, I may never give you what you think will make you happy, but what I will give you is my very self. I will let you wash my feet with your hair, and I will let you Sacrifice your entire life for me and you will experience tears of joy and a happiness that you would never have if I just gave you possession and power. Surrender. There was a song that people used to sing, I Surrender All. We're going to sing a song of surrender here in a little bit. We think we know what's best for us. We really do. Just like the Pharisees, what's best for me is position and power. But here's the truth. Even if what Jesus has for you is not something you think you want, it's better. And it's for your good. 
And it's for your joy. And it's because he loves you. He's tender with us. And he won't let us chase our idols the rest of our life. He'll let us pour out that ointment. Open our hands and say, it's all yours. Upon finding out that Jesus demands our surrender, I trust you. I trust you no matter what. I trust you. Upon finding out that Jesus demands our surrender, like many of the Pharisees, people rage. Nope. Because I don't trust Jesus. I trust myself more than I trust God. That's where so many people lie. It's not just about information. It's a trust issue. But if you, this morning, see the value of Jesus, non-believer, if you're here, if you see the value of Jesus, this morning, if you know what he did for you, he lived a perfect life in your place. The perfect life. He is the perfect follower. He followed his father perfectly every moment of every day. So people who don't appropriately and totally surrender like you and me can be forgiven. People who still struggle to cling on to idols and my plans and still struggle to believe that God's way and will is better than my way and will, we're forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. Because beloved, even with the spirit of God in us, you and I still struggle with that, believing that I know better than God, distrusting God, and because of what Christ has done for us, we are forgiven even in those moments, if you're in Christ. But this morning, if you know what he did for you, if you know, if you know his life, death, and resurrection, like Mary, you can gladly sit in the corner with her and watch. And watch Jesus laugh with Lazarus. And watch them enjoy life together. You know, everybody around you, everybody else around you is just having a, you know, a, a good time hanging out. But something else is happening inside of you because you just feel overwhelmed. Just with thankfulness. Jesus, I'd surrender anything. I would give you anything. Anything. You're so valuable. If I have you, I have everything. That you would gladly wash his feet. That you would go kneel alongside of Mary and say, can I help? I want to wash his feet too. You would submit to him and trust him. And you would believe, maybe more than ever, that following him and his will is better than following yourself and your will. And brother and sister in Christ, this is for you as well. If there's pockets of distrust in your heart, about God, but you really do trust what you want, and if you believe that everything that you had in life, if you could get everything you wanted, that you really believe that would make you happy and that would be what's best for you, maybe there's some more surrender for you to do here this morning, to just say, Jesus, I trust you no matter what, and that's the best position to be in. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your goodness. It is our joy. I don't want to be like the rich man 
who comes to Jesus and said, I've done all these things, these good things, good and right things. And Jesus looked to me and say, okay, go sell all you own and follow me. And Jesus, I don't want to look to you and ins- I don't want to be the man who's like, nah, I think I'll take my way. Nor do I want to be a believer in Christ who has split allegiance. Help the old man, dead man allegiance that still wars within me to die. If there's a non-believer here this morning, I ask that they would surrender. Surrender their will, their ways, their plans, their dreams, their hopes, ambitions. And they would deny themselves, even aspects of their personality, what they feel, what they think. And they would trust in Jesus this morning. And then for the believers in the room, which I, with the overwhelming majority of this room, help us to simply trust you, Jesus, no matter what. No matter what, my God is good to me, no matter what, he loves me, no matter what, I trust him. Joy comes not from getting what I want, but through having Jesus through everything. Holy Spirit, help us to sing. I trust you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship. There is no one like our Savior. Would you sing with me? Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. 